Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 220 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's D-Day, Monday night, June 6, 2022. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Uh, Bobby, two episodes in less than a month. <laughs> this, is, this is the real news that we're breaking live on the anyway, show. Did it, did it, did it, did it. We're back within uh, a single month. Uh, we're not quite getting to the bi-weekly schedule, but we're going to make an effort here. We actually don't have much to talk about. This might, dare I say it, Steve, be a short episode. Oh, there you go, jinxing it. I know. Well, I'm trying to. I'm trying to create conditions where it ends up being a full hour at least, but I, I, I'm i doubtful we get that far. We're I mean, we, I mean about... we could spend an hour alone just talking about the Mets, who are currently leading the Padres 3 nothing in the top of the third. Do you think if we increase the Mets' content by about five minutes per episode, eventually we can keep most of our audience and and have completely flipped it the national security mets podcast <laughs> the met security podcast <laughs> maybe so people hey, tune in thinking it's the meta podcast and it's just the mets don't let your dog bite your hand steve don't let my dog bite. oh yes well Scherzer. i got i it took me a second but i'm with you yes, yes, yes. all right so we have, we have we're going to check in with a few things and maybe not go very deep on them but we're going to check in in Trumplandia with our uh, recurring uh, uh, sustaining member things coming out of January 6th. So we have a, <laughs> a, new, a new set of seditious conspiracy charges, this time involving the Proud Boys. We had the Oath Keepers before, and now we have the Proud Boys. Uh, we've got some investigative, uh, uh, how do we describe this? How do we describe the Navarro situation? So contempt of, of Congress? Uh, Congress, yes. Where. <laughs> Where, where your and my favorite congressman, Louis Gohmert, said, you know, I don't understand. Like, what? They're going to throw the book at you? Like, it's a crime now to lie to the FBI? I'm like, yes, it is a crime to lie to the FBI. <laughs> so, so we'll check in with all that. Um, we'll, we'll take note of the uh, 5th and 11th Circuit social media state law. And Basically, the Florida and Texas social media law litigations. And, and SCOTUS's interesting intervention in them last week. Indeed. So we'll, we'll watch that pot continue to boil. Um, um, we, we'll talk a bit about what SCOTUS hasn't done yet, but we sort of a SCOTUS update as the, the court is almost to the halfway mark of its decisions decided for this term on June 6th. It's almost halfway. <laughs> and uh, and do, do you think, Steve, um, when Roman, Roman Abramovich found out that two of his planes are now subject to seizure, he said, Surely you must be joking. <laughs> I'm serious, and don't call me Shirley. <laughs> do you know, do you know, when I make airplane jokes in class these days, or I, should, I guess I should say these years, the oh. students have no idea what I'm talking about. Oh, that didn't surprise me. <laughs> airplane might as well be like a different planet. Like, you know, over, under, under, over, under. over, under, under, done. Uh, Roger Murdoch, kid. <laughs> co-pilot of this airplane yeah i think uh, airplane top secret johnny dangerously wrestler's rhapsody the whole genre of the uh completely over the top uh slapstick yep. uh theme film 1970s yeah yeah pretty dead speaking of over the top 1970s slapstick um i i didn't ask you before in our in our extensive pre-episode discussion but um there's a new series on stars called gaslit which is the story of Watergate through the lens of Martha oh, Mitchell, yeah? Yeah, yeah. With, with Julia Roberts as Martha Mitchell. And it is, it is sensational. And she is uh, sensational. 
it's it's interesting too that uh, that stars is able to pull together that kind of uh, celebrity power for a, a serious show like that. Um, everybody's a studio these days, I guess. What do you have against stars? Nothing. Just uh, I mean, have they done anything of that magnitude with that level of uh, oh. you know, for an original? Wasn't Homeland stars? Was it? I, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. Speaking of things I know very little about, should we talk about national security law? Nah. How about uh, a few minutes on that as a prelude to any Mets discussions or yeah, there you go. Obi-Wan Kenobi discussions that may have to take Ooh, place? Obi-Wan Kenobi. That's not, now we're talking. Yes. Um, okay. So uh, let, let's start in Trumplandia with uh, the additional charges this time involving uh, key figures with the Proud Boys. Um, Steve, when when we first, a while back, were thinking about what criminal charges might follow from the uh, the insurrection activity on January 6th. Mm, Homeland was showtime. Sorry, my bad. Well, oh, it was, okay, so totally different. That's proving my point. Yeah, yeah. Um, so when we first started observing this, the thing I believe we said long ago that was really worth watching for from a sort of a, interesting interesting substantive criminal law aspect is whether the justice department would bring seditious conspiracy charges yep. uh, against anybody associated with uh, january 6. um now they, they've they've broken the seal on that already as we noted previously with my uh, law small group section mate Stuart rhodes that's right your your best friend from law school best and friend. um or, or a colleague from law school <laughs> and, and now they've extended that to the proud boys uh group I, I'm not sure this warrants any sort of return to the ins and outs of the seditious conspiracy statute. We'll see if there ends up being anything to that. Uh, if you read the uh, the indictment, the superseding indictment, or the DOJ press release that kind of summarizes it, um, there are hints of some pretty interesting things that were this to go to trial, which it may not if it follows the pattern of the other case. Stuart Rhodes case, but were this to go to trial, um, there may be some interesting questions about just what dimensions of the seditious conspiracy statute they try to prove a violation of and, and how they try to prove it. But it's all too premature at this stage, I think, to try to, to guess exactly what their case in chief would be. Yeah, I, although, although I do think it supports the notion that DOJ is slowly rolling uphill on these charges and on these cases. Well, that's exactly where, where I wanted to go. The one thing we can't speculate about a bit more in a more fruitful way right now might be, is there a next step? I know a lot of the commentary says, okay, so they're, they're kind of checking most of the obvious boxes you might imagine would come out of those who actually entered the building um, or were heavily involved in, in, in uh, paving the way for those who entered the building. Uh, what many people are wondering is, will it go broader? Will it go to the, uh, the prior administration? So far, I see no sign of that. I see no reason to think that actually is coming, and I don't, I don't think it terribly likely, though it's not, it's not impossible, that Stuart Rhodes or the Proud Boys guys, that any of them, if they cut a deal, are in any kind of particularly useful way going to lead to an indictment of someone who was actually a government official, uh, a Trump administration official at that time. But I'm not saying it couldn't happen, but I'm, I'm not yet seeing reason to think it's going to happen. No, I mean, I, I think that's like, so I think two things can be true, right? That one, this is a further ratcheting up of the charges against those who were actually at the Capitol on January 6th, but that two, it's without prejudice to what else might be happening with regard to whether anyone's going to be charged 
you know, on the sort of White House side. Um, and I, I still think that's quite a long shot, but, you know, the the book is hardly closed, especially with, you know, the soon-to-be forthcoming events from the January 6th committee. Yeah, I I guess it's possible. And no, 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 I mean, but but they're not related, or at least they're not, they're not like, they're not causally related. Yeah. Um, by the way, one really good series that Stars is responsible for, just before I drop the thread. <laughs> See what um, we've talked about this on, on the show before, Boss, Kelsey Grammer. Oh, okay. So I take it back. They've been doing interesting work <laughs> with genuine stars, Kelsey Grammer. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so I, mean, I, I think it's just, it's, you know, it, I will say it is, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think I spend more time paying attention to right-wing social media than you do. It, it has been rather depressing, sobering to see all the discussion growing about how, you know, what would you prefer, you know, um, rising gas prices or mean tweets? Right. As if like, yes, the only problem with the Trump presidency was mean tweets. Like the more that, you know, the more that folks are prosecuted, not just for like entering restricted property for January 6th, but for seditious conspiracy, I think the more that that helps to, you know, really sort of build a compelling and irrefutable case that no, there was more going on on January 6th than just, you know, some people protesting. You know, as you say, I'm not on social media as much. And, and you're therefore happier. And, well, and I think there's something to that. And I've, I've, I've encouraged you both privately and publicly, if this True. counts as publicly before, to increase your happiness level by, by looking at it less. Um, I, I increasingly think it's, it's deep down bad for all of us to be as engaged as, as we sometimes can't help but be. Um, and I, I don't mean to say that I think Twitter is inherently bad. I still maintain my account there and I still find it very useful in some respects, but I'm trying to systematically um, turn my attention away from the, the, this angry ball of noise <laughs> that, that's so visible and large there. And um, the, the more I find there are times when I just don't really do anything on Twitter for a long time, honestly, the happier I am. I, I am confident this would be true for you too, because I know you mix it up more um, with folks and I, I can't imagine it's, it's very fun sometimes. No, I just feel like there's, I just feel like there's a, I don't know, maybe this is, maybe this is, is silly, but I feel like there's a danger in not paying any attention to what's happening in these spaces, given, you know, how close we came, you know, 17 months ago to some pretty, you know, democratically destructive things and how close we might yet come. And that like to ignore that line of, to, to ignore that body of, I don't know, nonsense, all those not nonsense, right. Is to sort of, is to wish it away as if it were going to go away just by ignoring it. And I'm, I worry that that's just not true. I think that studying what goes on, especially on Twitter, which had, so the reason we emphasize Twitter, of course, is that um, the punditry, including us, um, <laughs> we are pundits, uh, pundits, political figures and journalists. And, and if there's a difference between saying pundits and experts, maybe, maybe not, but these kind of uh, the chattering classes of our times, that's still, I think, the platform that is where, for the most part, that conversation and that chattering goes on. Um, that's that's a reason to be there. But then there's this larger sort of, you know, vast realm of provocateurs and people who are just talking trash and trolling. 
And I guess, you know, I'm, I'm trying to work it out in talking to you here. I, I hear what you're saying. So you don't want to pretend there's no, you want to know and responsible people, people of goodwill and, and who are interested in the truth want to pay attention to all forms of falsehoods and inflammatory things that are that are spiraling and really genuinely going viral and genuinely starting to influence online. Um, I, I guess I would still stand by the don't engage. Don't argue that that's sort of like, you know, yelling at the people to cut you off on the highway. And I, by the way, I think I've said this on the show before. I deeply believe that the, the sort of interpersonal dynamics of road rage are very similar to what goes on with social media for similar reasons of yeah. lack of direct firsthand accountability and so forth. Yep. Um, so I, I will at least hold the line on don't engage, don't engage with them, <laughs> even if you want to observe. Um, engage. Okay, so, Anything else to say about this? There's, like a, there's, a, there's a Picard joke somewhere that I couldn't oh. quite figure out. Gage, yes. You guys can't see it. Steve, Steve gave the uh, Captain Picard uh, hand signal. Make, make it so. I, does, that make, does that make me number one? <laughs> um, I don't know. You, you are the dean now, so I think that makes you the you know, fleet admiral. It's all, <laughs> maybe being a captain was my better duty. <laughs> um, I mean, that's what Kirk thought. Uh, there's something to that. Okay. Um, Let's let's turn our attention to okay uh, the Navarro uh, charges. What do you yeah. want to say about that? Um, it, it turns out that like you know talking to every single person in Washington except Congress is a pretty good way to get charged with contempt of Congress. <laughs> Here's what I'm wondering: Is there any chance they can run that case through the traps fast enough to where the election won't turn out to be kind of relevant for how that one ultimately goes? I mean, how I mean, quick, how I don't quick think, can those charges be be pursued? I, the indictment's been filed. Like, I don't think I, I don't think it, it, it's now completely out of Congress's hands, right? I mean, I don't know. No, so I'm, I'm talking about the Justice Department. I mean, how how likely is it that they could actually? Um, oh, you know, like by 2025? I mean, I, I you know. Yeah. So this that's my point, right? That yeah. Depending on what happens in the next election. Yep. That. There's there's a lot of stuff that's sort of slowly been getting entrained that depending on who the next president is and who then is the attorney general could kind of come unwound at a certain point. I mean, that's certainly true. I guess I just I think we have we'll have bigger fish to fry if that's what happens in 2025. But do you think that there's any chance in the next year or two this actually leads to testimony? From Navarro? Yeah. I doubt it. It's, it's, this is his whole shtick. I mean, I don't know. <clears throat> I, I don't see him, I don't see him trying to purge the contempt as a way. I mean, if that was going to happen, it would have happened already. Do you think the uh, Justice Department will take similarly aggressive action with any of the other uh, non compliant witnesses? I mean, they said they're not going to with Meadows and Scavino. So, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what that's, what that portends for the future, but we'll see. Do you think that's a justifiable distinction? Um, I think it depends on whether your goal is to win the case. I, I think I, I understand the distinction. I, I think, you know, it's easy for me to say this as a non-Justice Department lawyer that I would be willing to take more chances on the principle. And, you know, even if I was uncertain about the likelihood of prevailing. Um, should we move on then to social media litigation, the Florida bill and the Texas bill? Speaking of, speaking of, you know, whether we're on Twitter or not. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's theme appropriate. So, um, Bobby, stop censoring all these conservatives. 
You know, I am, I am profoundly anti-censorship and profoundly in favor of, <laughs> of allowing people to be heard. Um, do you feel like you could articulate any of the finer distinctions between the Texas statute and the Florida statute that are at issue? I mean, they're pretty similar. Um, I mean, they have some the some of the disclosure and reporting requirements are different, but like they both have. So, you know, at, starting with President Trump's suspension from Twitter and Facebook, um, you know, there was this whole thing about how big social media platforms are censoring conservatives um, and are persecuting conservatives. And it's all about, you know, sort of liberal shutting down, you know, canceling conservative speech. Um, it's impressive how, how bad liberals are at actually canceling conservative speech, given how much conservative speech there is. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just sort of thinking about events at Georgetown Law School over the last week. Anyway, um, but the, the sort of Texas and, and Florida, the bills both have at their core um, this idea that large social media platforms should not be allowed to engage in what the bills define as content-based moderation. Um, and, you know, I think in some respects it was a clumsy attempt on these legislatures' parts to basically ban what they perceive to be a form of viewpoint discrimination, um, right? That, you know, when the government engages in viewpoint discrimination, Bobby, as you know, that's some of the most, you know, problematic from a First Amendment perspective. And so viewpoint discrimination is usually subject to strict scrutiny. I think the bills are trying to get at that. But the way both bills are written, they effectively ban almost all content moderation because any content-based decision to take down a video, right, or to, you know, suspend a user um, is a violation of the of the law. So a really good example of this, the Buffalo shooting, you know, from last month, you know, the shooter live streamed the shooting on Twitch. And within like two minutes, I think maybe two one minute, minute. Yeah. Was it one minute? I thought it was two minutes. Whatever. It, yeah. But whatever very... it is, was in considering the volume of traffic. Yes. It was, it was not a slow response or a non-response. No, no, Twitch took down the video very, very quickly. Um, that didn't stop, you know, other sort of copies of the video from being spread on other platforms. But, you know, I think it's, there's a pretty good argument that Twitch taking down the video is a violation of both of these laws. Um, the way they're written. Because Twitch took down the video because of what was in them. That is to say, because of their content. Now, I, I actually think you might be able to argue, at least under the Texas law, that the exception for ongoing criminal activity might have justified at least Twitch taking down the live stream. Sure, I would think. But not the republication of the video, right? Not not people posting it to YouTube and Facebook and Instagram, because um, at that point the crime is over. And so, you know, I, I think that's a pretty good example of just how to me, overbroad these laws are. Um, the other piece of it is um, that the laws are all predicated on this idea that large social media companies, you know, can be subject to more coercive government regulation of speech um, because they are tantamount to common carriers, right? They're like utilities or railroads in that respect. Yeah, to me, that's sort of what's super fascinating here, because if we were talking about the question of how a government entity is engaging in content moderation on a government-owned platform, then yeah, the, the underlying philosophical or policy question about do we have a problem here of the government picking sides and debates and allowing one side to be heard, not the other, then th that's a serious First Amendment concern, not saying that the facts are, are right as the complainants are saying, but 
But if that were to be the case, that would obviously be a First Amendment issue. Here, the First Amendment issue is flipped on its head. Um, the government isn't the speaker here. Right. And therefore, the constraints on how the government's allowed to tilt the playing field on speech on their on its face is not relevant. It's a private entity deciding what goes on Correct. on its virtual premises. And I, I, do you agree with me that the the default position, though not necessarily the final answer, but the starting point by default is this is private action. You do not have state action. Hence, you do not have a First Amendment or by extension through the 14th Amendment, uh, free speech in that sense, type of constitutional uh, obligation on the part of the platforms to be uh, neutral in the way that the government certainly is expected to be neutral. You yeah. have to have some further special argument either to show that there is state action, which I don't think is the argument here, or as you say, that you get into that quirky doctrinal area of, of those private entities that are so cloaked with public function shared common public function that they end up taking on some of the regulability, if not the constitutional obligations, but the regulability by statute right. um, uh, in an area but, that otherwise I mean, would be true for the private sector. Is that what it boils down to? Yeah, but the, I mean, and let me just say, I mean, the notion that like social media platforms are common carriers is just, I mean, <clears throat> like there are... <laughs> We don't apply this to other to large corporations that have even more of a sort of dominant role in our access to ordinary goods, right? Like, I mean, the to, to, to sort of to cross the Rubicon of treating social media platforms as common carriers is, you know, either a sui generis exception or it's turning state action doctrine on its head. Because if social media platforms are common carriers, why isn't Amazon, right? There may and there may be there may be some who would say exactly. Um, yeah, but I mean, but, but 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 Bobby, these are I mean, you know, without getting too crass, I mean, these are some of the same folks who have spent decades resisting expansive conceptions of the state action doctrine, I, right? Because if we start I, look, applying, I, I don't think that we're talking about actually the same. Maybe some of these are the same folks. Obviously, it's a big world. There's some people who are going to be hypocrites on some issue, or they'll change their mind on some issue. But it's also the the case that the conservatives of the past who would have taken presumptively a free market perspective on this intervention in the affairs of private business. Um, I don't think it's, I don't think the median conservative right now is in, is in that same philosophical bucket. It's just, I, I, I it's, think it's a manifestation I, of the very different uh, party. I, I actually, bucket. I actually think this divides conservatives as the Texas case quite powerfully shows. I mean, if you look For at sure. the lawyers, no, because, not, because not everyone has changed. Right. Uh, famously. Right. Old school conservatives versus those who may not accurately be called conservatives. Right. Um, so anyway, so so the merit, so both the Florida and the Texas laws were subject to preliminary injunctions by district courts, one in Florida, one here in Austin. Um, the Fifth Circuit a couple of weeks ago, Bobby, right after hearing oral argument, um, issued a like completely unexplained, unsigned order where by a two to one vote they stayed. The district judge's injunction, which had the effect of putting Texas's law into immediate force, um, right. which, you know, as I've been saying about the Supreme Court shadow docket rules, if you're going to do that, it really seems like you ought to have to explain yourself, um, right? The Fifth Circuit offered narius. I mean, the only notation on the Fifth Circuit order was that one of the panel members, they didn't even say which one, dissented, um, right? Whereas the Eleventh Circuit, in a pretty thorough, and I have to say, Bobby, I thought very good, um, opinion by Judge Newsom, 
Um, you know, Trump appointed Judge Newsom. My law school uh, classmate. Kevin. Aha. I didn't even know that. Reunion. Just, um, yeah. right, I, I, I thought Newsom, I, I, I have some issues with some of Newsom's other opinions. I thought this one was very good. Um, I, I and think he wrote, that Kevin Newsom is, is a great judge and is pretty wide. Would you agree he is, he has bipartisan respect, but he is clearly a conservative judge, but he thought this was a pretty easy case, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I, without going into sort of other opinions he's written that I have some more significant concerns with, like the one where he thinks that all constitutional scrutiny is bunk, um, you know, I, I think that at least here, like he did a really nice job of explaining what the First Amendment issues are in both directions, why this, you know, may seem like a hard question, but why the current law is completely on the social media company side, right? Why it would take a pretty significant revolution in the court's first amendment jurisprudence for these laws to be constitutional because even even though the social media companies aren't bound by the first amendment texas and florida are and when texas and florida are basically telling private companies what speech they must allow on their platforms right they are compelling speech um so or at least they're you know they are interfering with the expressive rights of these private companies so and that's that's that seems like just clearly correct as a statement of long-standing current law which is why i think it really does matter a lot this sort of deeper philosophical position which as far as we know i think only justice thomas has shown you know clear indications of interest because he had that one was a concurrence a while back where he talked about the idea of a of a uh i think yeah but i think i think we're up to three now i mean we'll get uh, this is where i was going yeah well so um let's let's try to i want to try to see if we can isolate how strong that case could be and see what it looks like when given its sort of strongest light. So usually when I hear people talk about the common carrier argument as to the big social media platforms, and notice there's always sort of an elision there of like, well, what's your metric of what counts as the big? Because there's a lot of social media platforms. Obviously uh, people will say, well, you know, Facebook uh, and Twitter, well, Twitter's not nearly as big as some of these others. Um, does you know does TikTok count does does uh some of the does instagram count is does does the empire of meta entirely count as one thing there's some line drawing issues there but let's stipulate that there's basically imagine a world in which there's just one it's what everybody uses for pictures for video for text for everything it if we had a sufficiently strong network effects steve do you think is there space in, in a factually different universe, is there space for saying that a private company that seems to have achieved such a monopoly on all public discourse and information sharing taking place over apps and through websites, not over TV, obviously, or radio, since those seem to be still independent mechanisms, is there space in that world for saying that with network effects, locking it in against competition, it takes on the qualities of a common carrier of some kind. I mean, maybe at the super extremes, Bobby, but we're not close to that. I mean, I just, you know. Well, I certainly agree with that. Factually, we're not remotely there. I mean, look, find a teenager and ask them if they use Facebook. Rare is the one who will say they right. have anything to do with that. The idea that that these think that these big platforms are locked in currently, I think first of all, it doesn't stand the test of time. The turnover is significant generationally as people come of age and they have different platform preferences TikTok is huge it didn't you know exist in any of our minds 10 years ago five years ago uh 
so I agree with you that factually we're not really there yet. And, and I don't think we're trending there either. If anything, I think we're trending towards more and more separate um, platforms being used. Right. I mean, so I, I guess I'm just saying, like, I'm not like, I'm not a first amendment absolutist in either direction. I just think that like the casualness with which first Justice Thomas and now Justice Alito joined by Thomas and Gorsuch are like nodding at this argument is I think really alarming anyway, but so well, we should so, talk about it. So let's bring it to them. So the right. Fifth Circuit uh, sort of unstay decision pops up to the Supreme Court and then what happens? So um, the Supreme Court, the it got it was a shadow docket thing. Um, so the court actually sat, sat on it for longer than I was expecting it to. Um, but basically last Wednesday, by a five to four vote, the Supreme Court vacated the Fifth Circuit's stay, meaning the Supreme Court put the injunction back into effect, i.e. put the Texas law back on hold. Um, as with so many other shadow docket rulings, even those that grant emergency relief like this one, there was no majority opinion. There wasn't even a sort of cursory explanation from the five justices in the majority. Um, the the three dissenters, um, Gorsuch and Thomas, join Alito's dissent about, which we'll, we'll say more in a second. You know, Justice Kagan also noted a dissent, although she did not join Alito's opinion. Um, and there is some speculation that this is sort of Kagan's hostility to the shadow docket. I actually think this might be substantive. She's had some fairly idiosyncratic views about these First Amendment questions um, ever since. I mean, she wrote an article about it, like in 1996, when she was still a law professor. So I, I don't know that this was about the sort of general hostility to emergency relief versus um, sympathy for what Texas and Florida are doing, but we can't know because she didn't write. Um, the Alito Thomas Gorsuch opinion. So I want to say three things about it. First, yes, it leans. It doesn't embrace the common carrier argument, Bobby, but it says there's enough there, right, that that supported the Fifth Circuit's stay, um, which you know is a pretty remarkable thing to say about a Fifth Circuit opinion that had zero analysis, right? Like you know, it's like Alito tried to do the Fifth Circuit's work for for the Fifth Circuit. Yeah. Um, the second thing about the opinion is that it really does take. Um, a pretty dim view of the First Amendment rights of the social media companies, which seems like a pretty powerful countervailing consideration. But the yeah. third thing, and this is this is about where I sort of threw something at the wall, um, Alito closes his opinion by complaining that, you know, the district court, you know, by enjoining Texas's law before it could go into effect, that this kind of, um, he called it pre-clearance, I think a very deliberate shot Loaded at term. the Voting Rights Act, um, that this kind of pre that, that Texas should not have to pre-clear its laws by subjecting them to pre-enforcement review in district courts. That seems like a just a frontal challenge to the very idea of a declaratory judgment. Well, or of a pre or, or of pre-enforcement or of pre-enforcement injunctive relief. Yeah, um, a, whole, a whole slew of things that are kind of bread and butter in our, in our legal but, system. But Bobby, not just bread and butter. Like it would be one thing if along came Thomas Alito and Gorsuch with idiosyncratic views about pre-enforcement injunctions. But just on the shadow docket, just since November 2020, by my count, Bobby, they have all three voted in favor of 10 pre-enforcement injunctions. Mm. What was different? Well, those injunctions were of New York laws and California laws and Maine laws, mm. right? And it's just like, you know, 
it is so transparently hypocritical that like one wonders why you even say like you know does does he not think we're paying attention does he not think that like you know when he writes in an opinion that like texas shouldn't have to pre-clear its laws like does he understand that like he is signing on to opinion after opinion that is subjecting blue states to the exact standard he says texas should not be subjected to very interesting do you uh think that were this there's an interesting sort of larger question here alito's name sure is coming up a lot is it potentially alito's court um i guess it's clearly too soon to say is the first thing to say about that so you know i still think the i mean so you know we're, we're reaching that time of you know the we're reaching the big supreme court time right i mean the yes. court handed right. down three decisions today so it's handed down 29 of the 59 right argued cases from this term 30 to go in the next month yeah. um have we ever been this gummed up at the back end by by total number yes by percentage not for as long as there's data yeah i guess percentage wise um, that's what happens when you drop the n down to uh, what's well, the thing i mean right i mean 50 so I, I had a piece in msnbc daily over the weekend talking about like the the trend line of the supreme court you know 59 decisions this term 56 last term 53 the term before when you know so that's three terms in a row under 60. bobby before the october 2019 term the last time the court was below 60 was the civil war yeah um, still, it, the number still sounds funny to right me. I mean, yeah. right, we're used to, from our, like, from our law school days, we're used to, like, well, the Steve, high it's a, much, it's a much smaller population and economy than back then. Oh, yeah. Oh, wait, no, no. Oh, sorry. <laughs> it's radically the opposite of that. My bad. Although, although I am I am reading this fantastic, actually, I, this is a good chance to plug, I, I am reading this fantastic book um, about the Civil War economy um, and the, the, the competing economies of the North and the South. It's called Ways and Means, um, Lincoln and His Cabinet. And the financing of the Civil War by Roger Lowenstein. It's very good. Oh, that's interesting. That's um, a very Adam so, kind of yeah. way of approaching it. But back to your question. So I actually don't think it is Alito's court because he still needs the votes. And the votes he needs the most. The exactly. So so let's talk about who voted to block the Texas social media law, right? I mean, yeah, you know, Sotomayor and Breyer voted to block the Texas law, but so did the chief, so did Kavanaugh, so did Barrett. And yeah, it's interesting. I, I definitely, you know, I kind of say that in a provocative way about the court being Alito's. We'll see. Um, no, but I, I mean, I, I think it's very clearly the Kavanaugh-Barrett court. And, you know, it's going to be very hard to form majorities on cases with any kind of ideological valence that don't have at least one and maybe even both of them in it. Brett Kavanaugh, swing justice. I mean, it's all relative, right? Yes. <laughs> um, hey, I want to come back just real quick. I, you, the example earlier about the, the Buffalo video and Twitch pulling it down. So I, I was, I pulled up the text for House Bill 20, the Texas bill. It, if I'm reading this right, I don't think it would be a problem what Twitch did there under this statute for what it's worth. So at least the version I'm looking at here says a social media platform may not censor a user a user's expression or a user's ability to receive the expression of another person based on, uh, and there's three things that would be forbidden. One, doing that based on the viewpoint of the user or some other person. 
to the viewpoint represented in the user's expression um, or another person's expression, or three, the user's geographic location in this state or any other part of the state. That's a weird one at the end. I'm not sure that I was, somebody had something in mind there. I'm not sure what that geography, uh, censorship based on geography, what, what that's about. Um, I, it's not obvious to me that it's a plausible way to frame taking down you know, footage of a, of a violent crime, real life violent crime. And I, I mean, I think I think what what you're missing, Bobby, is that there was a provision that the text that the Democrats in the Texas legislature introduced that would have made explicit that you know the law would not extend to videos memorializing criminal activity, and that was not included in the bill. And in the briefing in the Supreme Court, you know, both sides made a big deal. You know, the sort of <laughs> Let me put it this way. Um, no one, I, I don't even think Texas argued that the that the Twitch video would clearly have been, you know, sort of subject to moderation under the bill. So I just, you know, I, I, I think this has, I, I, I don't think the defense of the Texas bill is that like the Texas shooting, the, the Buffalo shooting video maybe could have been taken down. They, like, I, I assume think, they didn't talk about that. Did they talk about that? I don't, I don't recall it coming up. I, so I, some of the amicus briefs talked about it. There were actually a, but for rare for a, um, rare for an emergency application, there were a number of amicus briefs. I don't, I don't remember if the party, I don't think the party briefs did, hmm. but yeah. suffice it to say, I think there was enough concern that it actually wouldn't be covered um, by those exceptions that this is part of the, the story. Just it seems to me, obviously, perfectly fine even if this were the or this is the law and if, if, if but, but again i mean but also i mean again the way the bill i mean keep in mind though right that the bill is also designed to chill right and to sort of to in, you know to influence these social media platforms who are all subject to significant penalty if they violate it right to engage in the moderation lest they run afoul of the bill i'll agree that this is the interiorum effect of of all bills that pretend or any law you know gdpr is like this when when the potential cost to you is big enough you're going to err not you're not going to get chalk on your on your cleats as uh, mike hayden once said if you're genuinely expecting there be a significant enforcement risk that could have a big enough upside to really cost you something painful you'll err some degree x away from the chalk and so i agree with i agree with that general proposition that having stuff like this out here um, creates a lot of deterrence and, and will drive companies to act in highly protective ways. Um, so well, and, and, and it's also part of why the Supreme Court has long suggested that you know chilling effects are especially a concern in First Amendment cases. No question. Look, I, to, to be clear, I don't think there's any doubt that these laws violate the First Amendment rights of the companies themselves. That I just think it's pretty clear. Hey, unless, they unless the, the doctrine actually changes, right? Under, under current and long-established law, uh, and law that has a lot of wisdom behind it, I will add, um, these, these statutes probably uh, probably will not survive. And, you know, the, the 11th Circuit opinion, the actual opinion we've got here. Suggests- you know, I, I think the Newsom opinion is very good. And I think, you know, the fact that there were five votes, even on the Supreme Court, you know, as it currently stands, to, to block the Texas law, I think is a pretty good sign of where this is going. Yeah, yep. Okay. Um, Let's uh, let's talk airplane with an exclamation mark. Um, I want to say just a real quick note about the Commerce Department <laughs> initiated action. Just because longtime listeners of the show know we love to talk about IEPA 
the International <laughs> Economic Powers Act. And this is not an IEPA action. And it's a useful teaching moment to remind everybody that IEPA is not the be all end all of all federal, uh, what, what I think of as extensions of the Federal Commerce Authority combined with the Curtis Wright type authority to, to create this panoply of ways in which the United States exercises its remarkable international economic power to create economic pressure. And of course, a big part, definitely not the only part, but a big part of what we've been doing vis-a-vis Russia since the horrific invasion of Ukraine has been to try to use our economic leverage as much as, much as possible. So what's the Commerce Department's role here? Well, uh, acting through the, ex- is it the Export uh, Administration Regulations, the EAR, um, they've imposed licensing requirements on many things, but in this case, uh, aircraft and aircraft parts and equipment bound for from the U.S. bound for Russia or Belarus. There's there's two similar uh, provisions here, um, and it applies to aircrafts or, or equipment originating here or that has a certain percentage of U.S. originated parts. And so the idea is that you have to get a license in order to, to carry out such a transaction, transaction very broadly understood to include, critically, flying your plane from here to there. <laughs> um, and then once you have that in place, then there's this sort of standing uh, prohibition on knowing violations of the licensing regime. So if you're if you're charged with reasonable notice of, of this licensing requirement and you nonetheless have have someone abscond with your plane and fly it <laughs> to Moscow, um, then you know, it's it's pretty straightforward. Uh, and there are no small number of Russian-owned uh, planes and parts that are experiencing uh, this licensing rule. And there's there's kind of this in-rem quality to it, Steve, where there's a long series of designations of these specific planes by tail number, including uh, Roman Abramovich's Gulfstream and his Dreamliner. By the way, interesting little fun fact, uh, you know, because it's we we all tend to watch these yacht seizure cases because they they sort of have this Rob Report lifestyles of the rich and famous quality, but these uh, these aerial yachts are something to behold. <laughs> Apparently, he uh, he recently got the uh, the Dreamliner trading in his old uh, I don't know what kind of Boeing it was before, but it was called the Bandit, and it had like all kinds of over the top, exactly what you would imagine, sort of. Uh, Updates to it. It did not look like an ordinary plane on that inside. Anyways, um, so about 400 million bucks worth of, of capital property that's now subject. It's been adjudicated liable for seizure. Of course, it'll, it'll, these, these things will never leave Russian airspace, probably, or at least they won't leave anytime soon. Certainly won't be coming back to the U.S. What's interesting is there was also a finding that Abramovich himself is in violation of the of the knowing violation rule. And as I understand it, and I have not looked at this closely, but I believe that the way this works is the penalty, the administrative penalty for this administrative violation is that you yourself are now on the hook for the value of the stuff. So that means there's a $400 million price tag that he's on the hook for. And I'm assuming that what will then happen is if there are any other Abramovich assets, they can be seized to satisfy that judgment in the administrative proceeding. So this is, I think, a complicated way of getting the value of the planes when you can't get the planes themselves. And that's that's some interesting, complicated, but nifty legal footwork. Let's uh, let's see if they can go out and actually execute on it. 
Yeah, um, surely other but, things. I know I don't think he owns any more uh, you know soccer teams. I don't believe he owns Chelsea anymore. But <laughs> you're you're a Premier League guy. You might know better than I. Nope, no, he no longer owns Chelsea. All right. Um, <clears throat> By the way, did you watch? Did you watch any of that Wales Ukraine um, uh, um, World Cup playoff match? No, I didn't. How did uh, what happened? So you know, Wales, where Ukraine was playing Wales for the very, very last spot in the World Cup field, because the that last leg of the the it was the European playoff. It was a playoff for the last European slot. This isn't World really Cup Eurovision field. you're talking about, is it? No, this is actually the World Cup. This is soccer. Okay. <laughs> um, and for obvious reasons, the playoff had been delayed a little bit, um, and so Ukraine. I'm trying. To, I think they had to play. They had Ukraine played Scotland first, and then the winner of Ukraine Scotland played Wales, and then the winner of that would get the last spot. As it turns out, in the United States' group, um, oh. in the World Cup, so. and so that that playoff match was finally on Sunday, and um, Wales actually won at home, one nil. Uh, you you almost feel bad. Um... Well, good for the Welsh. But well, it means actually that the U.S. So that's actually now the U.S.'s World Cup opener. It's going to be November twenty-first against Wales. Oh, is that right? Wow. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm looking forward to the World Cup. Very much looking forward to it. See, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just, I'm just bringing the knowledge. You are, you are indeed. Hey, and we're having a good soccer season here in Austin, y'all. Austin FC, that's fun. Austin FC, El Trey is uh, doing pretty well. By the way, we it, we talked about Russia, Ukraine, and planes, and we didn't talk about the AN-225. Go for it. Um, so the, this is, right, AN-225, uh, I'm going to mess up the name, but Maria, Maria, um, right, um, is this, like, massive, crazy, insane, large aircraft. I think there were two that were made. Um, and it's this, like, crazy, crazy yeah, cargo plane. Howard kind of thing, Spruce Goose? Kind of, but actually, like, useful for carrying, like, massively large um, it's the heaviest aircraft ever built, the largest wingspan of any aircraft in operational service, um, et cetera. Anyway, only one of them was ever actually completed, um, and it was destroyed during the Battle of Antonov Airport in the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, I just pulled up a picture of it. It looks straight out. The picture that came up looks like the scene in the movie Airplane when it when the plane like comes right into the air traffic control. Well, you know, there's, there is a movie in which the AN-225, or at least a a very sophisticated computer-generated mock-up of it makes a pretty big appearance, and that movie is 2012. Huh. Well, I got to say, this is a, a strange-looking plane, and... Um, or it was a strange-looking plane. <laughs> Why? Well, fare thee well. Seriously. Okay. Um, I think we've exhausted our serious topics. Well, I'm certainly exhausted. <laughs> it, is, it, is a, it is in the evening when we're recording. <laughs> we we got to stop how recording. How much we love y'all. We did not want to let another day go by. Seriously, we got to stop recording at night. Uh, yeah, this is not. <laughs> Karen, sure. Karen came out like 15 minutes ago and gave me a look. No, no, I've been getting that. I got the same look and I earned it and deserved it. <laughs> and I'm sure listeners can tell we, we're not as spry and uh, energetic probably as we would be in the daytime recording. Sorry. In other words, we're normal. Yeah, exactly. Okay, let's uh let's pivot to just pure frivolity. You've seen all three of the Obi One episodes. I've only seen the first two. We got to be careful here. Don't ruin it for me. Um, I can't figure out what, what that sound could possibly signify. <laughs> so let's talk. Um, first of all, uh, what elements of the series are you particularly liking so far? Hmm. It's dark. I like that. I, I, I mean, in both respects, it is cine the cinematography is dark, but also like the plot is dark. Like, you know, 
Obi-Wan's like not happy. Like, you know, things, things are tough for him. I think that, I think it's cool. The choice to fr- the, the writer's choice to uh, kind of open with, like it's, he's not like the happy go lucky, That's right. you know, I'm on my mission here. Everything's going well. I'm, I'm still very dedicated. He's pretty beaten down. He's basically working at an open air sushi farm in the middle of the desert. Exactly. And he's pulling a Dan Aykroyd stuffing uh, fish into his pocket. Every Ooh, day. Uh, oh, a little yeah. trading places reference. You like that? Um, yeah. <laughs> Although Dan Aykroyd was stuffing the salmon down his, his coat for himself. That's true. At least this was for his, his, his lovely ride, his ride home. But so, also, I mean, I mean right, compa- I mean, com- but compared to like the post, you know, compared to the Al Guinness Obi-Wan who we meet in episode four, like this guy's unhappy. Yeah. And so it suggests that if they've, if they've done the writing well here, the story arc's going to include him kind of finding his mojo again. He's obviously lost at the very beginning. He starts mm. getting it back pretty quickly, thanks to Jimmy Smith's. Mm. Um, love it that Jimmy Smith's, you know, I, I appreciate There's, there's the been a Bell Organa reappearance. Yeah. And, and same with Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru. It's, it's good, very good that they're able to get these actors back. Um, so, so the setup with him sort of, basically having watched his hands of it all good um it felt a little little boba fetty with the the one guy who's sort of is he a jedi on the run he sure sure seemed like a bit of a mess the guy who's the foil to introduce the inquisitors um didn't didn't love the thinness of that but i sure do like the inquisitors that's (laughs) a good innovation and a good a good set of each very distinct feeling and looking um characters but moses ingram is so awesome is such a badass as the completely insubordinate and much more aggressive than the rest of them uh uh inquisitor in in her obsession with going after (laughs) obi-wan it's pretty great i thought um and and also when we i think it's the end of episode two when we find out who the inquisitors work for right oh indeed and um so what'd you think of uh kumail nanjani showing up for a, a second episode. <laughs> That's a little bit of fan service, I think. Yeah, I, I guess I I don't love having the intrusion into the 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 Star Wars fantasy realm of extremely recognizable name brand actors. We've we've already had, you know, it's not the first time. Like it, you and always, McGregor. It always kind of it, it breaks the you know susp- willing suspension of disbelief a little bit. That said, um Having him be a con artist was pretty <laughs> awesome, and he was and he was right. really. I mean, they had some fun. Kid. They had some fun with it. Oh my um, god, that, so scene, talk, that scene was pretty great. Can we talk about Leia? Oh, little Leia, so good, right? Or no? Are you not on board? Because I'm I'm totally down with it. I think. Listen, I think I think her character is great. The actress who's playing her is great. Like it reminds me a little bit of Leanna Mormont um, from you know the <laughs> the. Cute. Uh, the sort of latter seasons of of Game of Thrones. So here's my I, I have a my, my problem, and I haven't yet gone back to reconstruct the pieces. And I, this also might be getting a little bit into episode three, so I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole. But like, she, you know, Kid Leia knows quite a lot about everything, and I'm wondering if like this is consistent with what grown up Leia knows in episodes four, five, and six. Yeah. Like, interesting continuity questions there i mean look it definitely sets up for why later on we hear the uh you know help me obi-wan your our only hope like why would she know so much about this guy well because as a child he basically saved her bacon um 
No, no, so I mean, no, no. So, so that part's clearly right, right? Like, like, like the the Leia Obi Wan relationship, I get. But like, you know, she is exposed to so much already about like the Empire and the Jedi, and you know, the sort of, I don't know, I just what it means to be force sensitive, right? Like all this stuff where I just, I don't know. It seems like. There's some continuity risk coming up. Yes. Is what you're saying? Yes, I think that's that's well that's well said. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, she she's a I mean she's obviously meant to be spunky. She's pretty great in, in the way. Uh, is it is it does he say Obi Wan says at one point you know um, how how old are you? Yes, it's pretty great. Yes, um, and as as both of us I mean people who've spent lots of times around. Um, really smart kids, some of whom are related to us. Um, it's pretty great. Um, I will say just from sort of the musician viewpoint that I was delighted as, as the kidnappers kind of come into view, I'm like, wait, why do I know that guy? That's Flea. <laughs> that was pretty fun. I mean, Flea from the Red Hots as, as the uh, uh, guy doing, leading the kidnapping was a nice little treat. Uh, anything you didn't like about what's been going on? Um, I mean, there's, so it's interesting, right? Like I, I, I feel like much more so than Mandalorian or Boba Fett, the, this series is very much, there's a lot of fan service and there's a lot of like, like it's so much more directly connected to the plot arc of the, of the movies. Yeah. I, I like it for that. I, I can tell you like in the end, we never really got the chance to talk about Boba Fett. I don't think I really did not like Boba Fett. Um, don't in in part because of the what i felt like was so much discontinuity with the what we knew of the, little we knew of the character yeah and, and then also of course the utterly unforgivable back to the future <laughs> you know bike homage <laughs> and just don't even get me started on the bikers generally um but yeah i don't mind that i i appreciate the attempt to fill in some of the story in, in the same way that i thought uh rogue one I liked Rogue One a lot. Well, oh, I I, I, I really liked Rogue One. Yeah. Like uh, well, I, I mean, Rogue One might actually be the best Star Wars movie. It's uh I think there's a, a cap on what it could be because it's because it's yeah. not part of the original. Um, yeah. but it's really good. And basically it's certainly the 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 cream of the crop of everything that came after the original. Um how did you feel about Solo, a Star Wars story? Yeah, I I thought Solo had its moments, but I also thought that it was like, it's funny that they sat down to write a movie, a movie, to basically resolve sort of two gaffes from the original movies with, with the parsecs, <laughs> the parsec measurement issue yeah. as a speed thing. It's like That's it's what... like the whole movie, the plot of the whole movie <laughs> is designed to create out a reason why Han Solo might have said that he did the Kessel Run in twelve parsecs. <laughs> By the way, that's our episode title. This podcast did the Kessel Run in twelve parsecs. We already we just did this episode in twelve parsecs. <laughs> we did this. There you go. We did this episode in twelve parsecs. This or we made no, no. We made this episode, right? Did you say I made the Kessel Run? Uh, we'll have to look it up. Okay. If only, man. What did people do before the internet? <laughs> yeah, it's made. They didn't have podcasts. Made the Kessel Run. The Falcon's a ship that made the Kessel Run. In All right, so this podcast made the... Less than 12 parsecs. This podcast made the Kessel Run in less than 12 parsecs. <laughs> episode title. Awesome. I feel like that's consistent because I feel like we also had a, an episode once called Han, Han Shot First. Oh, we for sure. Because <laughs> he did. Because <laughs> he did. 
We've probably also made the Kessel joke before, but sure you know. No, it would it would be uh, peak NSL podcast for us to actually reuse a title <laughs> without even realizing it. I, well, I'm, I'm sure we've re. re That's like the I'm time sure my, my, par- my parents. My parents. I think I've told the story, but like we used to have a book night every year for Hanukkah, and so when I was like. 11 or 12, my parents got me, or maybe I was 13 or 14, my parents got me the physics of Star Trek for book night. Oh. And then the next year, they got it for me again because they forgot <laughs> that they had gotten it for me the previous year. But That's so then for the next like four years, they kept getting me the physics of Star Trek so it became a gag. Oh, I love that. That's. Uh, I won't say anything about your upcoming uh, gift-giving occasions, but should I choose go. to buy? I now know. Oh. We all know what to get you. Seriously. Let's, let's just see how many copies of that book Steve could possibly be made to own. Mets playoff tickets. Um, so uh, one last thing about about um, the one other show I've been watching that I've actually been really enjoying is on the Paramount app, um, The Offer. Hmm, what's that about? Uh-oh. <laughs> Sorry, I had to sneeze. Bless you. Um, I really should figure out how to edit that out. Um, it's so all the, part of the, uh, the uh, charming authenticity of the show. It's like listening to us on vinyl. <laughs> You know, there, there are these right. There are these podcasts that edit out all of the pauses, and I'm like, I can't listen. Oh, like, that's, that's not natural. Um, so, the offer is a series about the making of The Godfather. Oh yeah, yeah of course, of course, of course. I didn't realize that was the uh, title, yeah. but I, and it is. I, you I, I couldn't say, avoid the commercials. They didn't spare the budget on promotion for it, but it looks good. I've, I, I mean, I have really, really enjoyed it. I mean, maybe just because okay. I'm obsessed with The Godfather. But it is it's... a great film. It's great, great fun to watch it. All right, I'll, I'll add that to the list of things I'll never get to, but would like to. There um, you go, Dean. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, hey, I've got uh, more time on airplanes these days, so maybe I will start seeing things. Um, <laughs> By the way, how quick that became a thing. Seriously, okay. um, maybe you'll finally learn how to how Southwest boarding works. Um, uh, oh no. We've got that locked down. I finally. Hey, there it. you go. <laughs> um, hey, by the way, the Texas softball team has surged ahead of Oklahoma State. It's yes. now six. It's now six to five in the bottom of the fifth. Way to go, Horns! That's awesome. So if they if they hold on, they go to the championship series where they'll have the honor of getting destroyed by Oklahoma. No, 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 no! They've destroyed us a few times already, and in a, you know, it's in the great order of things. It's our turn. To, we just need to win a couple here. We'll take our couple. I mean, I, listen, I'll be rooting very hard for us, but Oklahoma is very good. No, no, you sucks. <laughs> I'm sure everyone. It's in, my, it's in my contract to say things like that. I'm sure everyone at the beginning of the year had Texas and Oklahoma as the as the championship, or if it's not, I mean, it's either Texas, Oklahoma, or it's Oklahoma State, Oklahoma, and that you know the call the the, the women's college world series would be pretty great. And you know where the women's college world series is? No, no, where is it going on? Oklahoma City. <laughs> That's awesome. So I mean, I mean, I'm rooting for Texas, but imagine if it's Oklahoma City and you get an Oklahoma, Oklahoma City, um, um, women's call, or sorry, Oklahoma, Oklahoma State women's college World Series championship in Oklahoma City. No, or, or if it's OU and UT, what do the Oklahoma yeah. State fans do? I actually don't know this Ooh. in the hierarchy of a proper Oklahoma State cowboy. That's a good question. Uh, you know, lesser evil hierarchy. Which is lesser? lesser? Is it us? I feel like it's got to be right. It's got to be us, right? I mean, there's no name for the Oklahoma State-Texas rivalry. No, I mean, yeah, I I can't imagine. It's Bedlam, right? How could how could how could how could how could the Pokies how could the Pokies root for the Sooners? I just I can't see a world in which that happens. If uh, OU was playing A and M, what does what does the official (laughs) UT Regents rule on that uh, lesser evil calculation? Uh, Vote for the Cubs. 
Yeah, just watch. Go watch basketball. By the way, my, remember my prediction was the Warriors and Bucks. I only got half of it, but the Warriors are still in it. I feel feel pretty vindicated on the Warriors. Season. I don't remember. I don't remember who I predicted, but I don't think it was either. Probably of those not teams. the Celtics. <laughs> um, but how about it. the how about the Rangers? You mean the? Are you talking about the hockey Rangers? Or are you talking yeah. about the Texas Rangers? I'm talking about the hockey Rangers. I don't do hockey, but I'll take your word for it. I did know they were. Are we in the finals? Are they're up the, two to so so they're up two to one in the Eastern Conference Finals over the two-time defending Stanley Cup champion Tampa Bay Lightning, and the winner plays Colorado in the Stanley Cup Finals. Ah, okay, so my my Rangers knowledge is limited to the idea that Messier skated for them. <laughs> Messier <laughs> didn't he? Wasn't he? Wasn't he with the Rangers when he yes, wasn't Bobby, a very long time ago? Yes. Yeah. My my. <laughs> I will say that my knowledge of the NHL is based entirely on that window of time when that was some of the only content ESPN had. Indeed. It was during Gretzky's, it was, it was during those incredible Edmonton Oiler years. Yes. It was like the Chicago Bulls. It was unbelievable. Even their second line was all Hall of Famers. Yep. Yep. Gary Curry. (sighs) There's a lot of stuff that, you know, I'm with you on that. There's a lot of stuff that people like you and me watch just because it was all ESPN was allowed to broadcast. (laughs) There were only so many channels. And ESPN had Australian rules football and hockey. (laughs) And WGN had the Cubs. WTBS had the Braves. And WOR had the Mets. Mets, And that combined with Corner, Bob Murphy, combined with Ralph Kiner. Davey Johnson went to Alma Heights, where I went. I know. That's why you're a Mets fan. These things, this plus the fact that they were amazing and fascinating. uh, Yes, that was more than enough. Okay, I think we've clearly uh, exhausted our topic list and exhausted ourselves, <laughs> and God knows what we've done to our listening audience. So let's Seriously. let them go, let ourselves go. Um, um, but hey, maybe we'll do this again in June. Oh, for sure. Yeah, Look yeah. at you. Your, your confidence is inspiring. Yes, yes, yes. It's only a matter of time before we set up a studio in the dean's office. I, I mean, you, you know. saw my text about that. that I, I did. Have, yeah, I, I have did. An idea about uh, unlike all of our listeners, I didn't fax your text about that. Thank you. Um, I, to be clear, so that anyone who wants to record stuff could go. Record <laughs> you mean it's not just going to be the Bobby, the Bobby and Steve podcast suite. Well, there's questions about how we decorate it, so there, there is that. <laughs> I, I just wonder if you really want to incentivize everyone on our faculty to. Have hey, a I'm sure somebody listening out there wants to donate to the law school to, to get the naming rights for the podcast studio. I love it. I love it. The the National Security Law Podcast Studio brought to you what's by the, Steve. What's the price tag on something like that? That seems that seems like a high dollar item for sure. Mets playoff tickets, <laughs> with transportation and uh, and a hotel. Now you're talking. Sure, um, but I so how think, does I that, mean, how does that benefit the school again? <laughs> yeah, we'll have to come up with some better plan than that. No, just a better justification. <laughs> Talk to compliance. <laughs> That's your problem, man, not mine. <laughs> Awesome. Uh, all right, everybody. He is at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. Um, try try yourselves to see if you can do the Kessel Run in under 12 parsecs. Stay safe out there. <laughs> Adios.